Thank you, Father, for Christ our Savior. He is our all. We have nothing else apart from him. When the crowds were leaving our Savior, he looked at the twelve and asked them, Will you go too? And thankfully, Father, they responded and said, Where will we go? You have the words of life. Oh, indeed. Here in our Savior, we have life eternal. We have hope and we have confidence for living in this very difficult world. We've read of it extensively this morning, this hope of glory and the hope of the resurrection and the hope of immortality and the hope of the death of death. And this is, this is our strength and this is our confidence. Would you help us to live in it this morning? Would you help us to be transformed by it this morning so that we might live in this reality in a very particular way this year as a church body and in an ongoing manner until we enter the gates of heaven and see this one who has redeemed us? Would you guide us? Instruct us by your word. Would you give us hearts to receive? And would you be pleased, as we've already prayed, to bring about transformation, worship, and delight in you? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In the late 1980s, Henry Dempsey was a pilot for a commuter airline. On one particular flight, he was flying with a co-pilot, ferrying a plane. It was an empty 15-passenger plane. And as they were making their way toward their destination, they heard a rattle in the back of the plane. So Henry turned the controls over to his co-pilot and said, I'd like to go investigate and see what's going on back there. And as he was making his way to the back, he made his way to the doorway area And as he approached the door, the plane hit some turbulence and pitched him forward towards the door and the door swung open. And he went out of the airplane without a parachute. And in God's providence, as he fell, he was able to grab hold of the cable on the stairway. He's now holding onto the cable at the stairway doing 190 miles an hour in the open air, 4,000 feet above the ground. My hands are sweaty right now, and they were sweaty when I was typing this on Friday. He was backwards in the air, holding on. He said he tried to shout for help, but not only could the co-pilot not hear him, he couldn't even hear himself as he shouted. And so there he was. The pilot recognized that the door ajar light had come on and realized that something significant had happened. So he radioed for an adjustment of the flight plan and made his way to the nearest airport, not knowing that the pilot was hanging onto the plane. 
And so he made his way to the new route 10 minutes away. And while he did so, talking to the tower that was there, he said, would you please send a helicopter? I think we've lost someone over the lake that they were flying over. Dempsey later said, when I was first sucked out of the plane, I knew I was in big trouble. I thought I was fish bait. The plane landed at the standard 100 miles an hour and Dempsey's head was a mere 12 inches above the runway as it landed. I thought I was going to die because there was absolutely nothing I could do, Dempsey said. Then a strange sense of relaxation came over me. I really didn't feel any pain at first. Pain didn't even enter the picture. I've been flying long enough to try and not panic. No, he didn't panic, but he did hold on tightly. You giggle. It took them literally 10 minutes to pry his fingers from around the cable. So tightly was he holding on. Well, I expect and hope that none of us have had such a trying circumstance But you know about difficulty in this world, don't you? You know about trials and troubles and suffering. You know about the relentless attacks of temptation. The temptations are persistent and the lies deceptive and the costs so very great. You know the decadent rebellion of the culture. Are you not grieved at what our culture is doing to our women and our children. We are decimating them. So many women, so horribly treated. And now we are putting children into circumstances and giving them temptations and giving them choices to make that are far beyond their mental or emotional, spiritual capacity to make those decisions. And we're destroying them. You know about just injustice. You know about inequity. It's not fair. It's not just a lament of your eight-year-old. You know the sufferings and sorrows of physical ailment and death and pain. Many of you have walked or are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And yes, it is a shadow, but it is a heavy and dark shadow. You know the challenges of living with uncertainty about the future. Will I make it financially in this world? You know the burdens of difficult and broken relationships. And even more grievously, some of those damaged relationships have happened in the context of the church. And some of you have been harmed by those who have been even given care over your souls. You know about trial and trouble. We live in a broken world. And while it seems to be more broken and more difficult, none of the things that I have mentioned are new. You can open to just about any page of Scripture and find similar laments. We've already read it this morning, Psalm 13. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long? Will my enemy be exalted over me? 
Or the 88th Psalm. O Lord, the God of my salvation, I have cried out by day and in the night before you. Let my prayer, my, let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul has had enough troubles and my life has drawn near to Sheol. I, I look forward and all I see is death. Or Peter. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Don't you wish it was strange when you suffer? But it's not. Our difficulties and suffering may also lead to a temptation to despair, even to leave the faith. And some are. Some are trading their faith in Christ for false religions, what we used to call apostasy, and now is being called deconstructing your faith. It just sounds so much nicer, doesn't it? Some are going the way of Demas, trading faith for licentious living. Our last two sermon series have been designed to fight against those temptations so that we could see, hope in, be confident in the victory of God. So first we went through Hebrews 11 and then the book of Zechariah. This morning I want to draw your attention to one short verse tucked away at the end of a most magnificent chapter to be reminded of our theme of the year. Where are we going this year? Our theme this year is two words. Be steadfast. In this broken world, be steadfast. In temptation, be steadfast. In suffering and physical ailment, be steadfast. In ministry, be steadfast. Oh, brothers and sisters, don't quit. Don't give up. We draw this from 1 Corinthians 15, 58, where we will find this morning, we endure in faith and ministry because of the hope of the resurrection. Why do you keep on? Why do you endure? Why do you persist? Why do you hold on? Why should we be steadfast? Oh, because of the resurrection. There's a good day coming. And it is sure. As we move through these, this passage, this verse this morning, I want to help you observe three aspects of Paul's exhortation. Three aspects of Paul's exhortation. There's a command, be steadfast. There's a context in which that command is fulfilled, be steadfast in Christ's work. And there is a causation for that steadfastness, be steadfast because. And you've got to wait for what follows the because. Before we look at what Paul says, I just want you to remember the context in which he is speaking and writing. Notice as we come to 1 Corinthians 15, 58, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers. That is a pretty typical kind of greeting. It's affectionate. It's sweet. Um, This morning, I expect that any number of you have greeted one another, put an arm of hug around and said, Hey, brother, it's good to see you. You might not have said, Beloved brother, but it's there. Right? It's that affection. It's that warmth. It's that kindness. It's common throughout the New Testament. It's even common in this book, chapter 10, 
Paul says in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. But when Paul wrote this letter, the Corinthians did not seem to be particularly brotherly with him or at peace with him. You might remember that there was a particularly big problem going on in the Corinthian church. There was a man in chapter 3, we find out about him, excuse me, chapter 5, we find out about him, a man having an incestuous relationship with his stepmother. It was so heinous that Paul says, even the Gentiles don't do that. Even they understand that this is wrong. It was not only that that was going on in the context of the church. It's not only that they knew about it. It's that they didn't care and they didn't do anything about it. And that compounded the problem even more. And so here this man is flourishing in ministry, so-called. And the church just ignores the problem as if it's not around. Paul calls them to task. And as he does so, instead of repenting, they turn and they begin attacking the Apostle Paul. And his apostleship. Now if that would have been the only problem in the Corinthian church. That would have been enough. Don't you think? But there were all kinds of other theological and pragmatic errors in the church. There was interpersonal conflict and divisions within the church. That's one of the first things he mentions at the beginning of chapter 1. There was self-exaltation and the denial of the power of the cross. There was an immaturity in the church that seemed pervasive. He calls them spiritual infants. Chapter 4, there was criticism of Paul and his apostleship. Chapter 6, there were members suing one another. Also chapter 6, other forms of sexual immorality. And in contrast to those who were sexually immoral, there were others who were saying that even in the context of marriage, there should be celibacy. That's chapter 7. There was misuse of liberty and weaker brothers were stumbling because of liberties that were being abused. There was idolatry and rebellion. There were disputes over headship and leadership in the church. They come to the communion table and there's drunkenness and gluttony. There was a misuse of spiritual gifts, a lack of love for one another in the body of Christ. And in chapter 15, they're denying the resurrection. It's like the pillar. It's the, the biggest of all. In fact, someone has counted at least 20 errors of doctrine and faith or doctrine and life that were going on in the Corinthian church. It it was a massively problematic church. And Paul says to them, my beloved brothers, he's appealing to them with affection and grace. A church that has been confused about so many issues, including the resurrection, including the thing that is the pillar of everything that we do. And some of those in that church, don't you know, but some of those, those who are still faithful in that church, just had to be throwing their hands up and saying, I quit. Forget it. It's too hard. Why persist Everything is going the wrong direction. Let's just close the doors. Walk away. What's the admonition that they needed to hear? What they needed to hear was this admonition. Be steadfast. Hold on. Here's the command for us. It's given right at the beginning of this verse. 
And my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable. To convey one idea, Paul uses two separate words. They are the positive and the negative, if you will, of the same idea. To be steadfast is the positive statement. Do this, he says. Be firm. Be resolute. In other contexts, this word is used about about building on a foundation and something that has permanence and stability, structure, strength. So to be steadfast is to be unwavering, unmoving. And Paul uses here the present tense of this imperative, which means continually be doing this. And ordinarily we would say Paul means by that continue to be steadfast. But if the letter has proven one thing, it's that the Corinthian church is anything but steadfast. They're not holding on. They're not firm. They're not resolute. And they certainly weren't resolute on the thing that they should have absolutely been most resolute on, and that's the resurrection. Regarding the resurrection, they were fickle and wishy-washy and unstable. Verse 12 of this chapter, If Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, then how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? No, Christ is resurrected. How dare you say that there is no resurrection and some were. So Paul is not saying keep being steadfast. Paul is saying become steadfast. Become resolute. Prove yourselves continually steadfast. And particularly as he gets to the end of this great chapter on the resurrection, perhaps the greatest chapter on the resurrection in all of the scriptures Be steadfast on the resurrection. Don't give that up. If you give that up, you've lost everything. Be resolute. Be decisive. Whatever the pressure, whatever the temptation, be firm in your commitment to remain with Christ, to depend on His resurrection, to trust Him in all things. Just a side note. It behooves us to hear this imperative and recognize that there will always be pressures and temptations to discourage us and and dissuade us of the value of Christ and of the importance of persisting in the faith. This admonition is a reminder that there is an ever-present temptation to quit, to abdicate, to give up on the things that are most important in our faith. Oh, brothers, don't quit. Don't stop. We don't have time to unpack it. But there are temptations to believe faithlessly, to believe the wrong things. That's verse 12. That's abdicating on the essence of the gospel. And there are temptations to live faithlessly. Think about a guy that's coming to worship regularly, living in an incestuous relationship. And you have... Your temptations and I have my temptations as well. Those things that pop into our heads periodically and say, it's not worth it. Just bail. Just quit. Paul says, be steadfast. Build on the foundation. Stay rooted to the rock of Christ and his word.
not only be steadfast, but there's a negative component to that as well. Negative in the sense of don't do this. Be immovable. Don't be moved off. Don't be moved away. Particularly, don't be moved away from the resurrection. The word immovable refers to something that is anchored. It's attached to a strong foundation. It's a house that is anchored to the foundation. And when the the storms of difficulty, when the storms rage against it and the wind blows and the seas rise, in Texas we say when the tornado shows up, that house stays firm. The anchored life remains connected to Christ. Whatever the external pressure, there's always an inward resolve to remain with Christ. And again, this is a reminder to us. It's a warning. There always is an opportunity. There's always a temptation. There's always an enticement to move away from the gospel. Remember what Paul says at the beginning of this chapter? I want to make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I preach to you, which you also received, in which you stand. You want to stand? It's the gospel. And if you want to believe the gospel, what do you need to believe? You need to believe the resurrection, which is what he unpacks in verses 3 and 4 and then through the rest of the chapter. Brothers and sisters, if you want to stand, you need to be resolute now. You need to make a decision today. I'm, I'm, I'm anchoring my life in Christ The day of temptation is not the day to decide, well, which way am I going? When I was in seminary about six millennia ago, in one of my courses, actually a course on Corinthians, they had us write three papers, one on divorce and remarriage, one on role of women in the church, and one on sign gifts. And they said, guys, your time to decide what you believe about those things is now. Because if you wait till you get to the church and the issue pops up, it's too late to decide. You won't be able to look at it with objectivity. And it's the same for us in temptation. The way, the, the time to decide what you believe and where you will stand and what, is, what you are rooted to is not when you're in the, in the temptation and in the trouble and in the trial. It's before you get there. You've got to anchor before the storm comes. If you wait till the hurricane is showing up and the winds are starting to blow at 40 miles an hour, it's too late to put up the plywood over the windows. It ain't happening. And if you wait to decide what you think about Jesus Christ until you get to the temptation, it's too late. You've got to decide now. That's why Paul says, brothers, be steadfast. Be immovable now. He is particularly calling for vigilance to protect and preserve the truth of the resurrection. For 14 chapters, he has unpacked problem after problem after problem after problem. And he culminates in chapter 15 by addressing the greatest problem in the church, the false teaching about Christ and the resurrection. And his exhortation is that everything about our life and faith is dependent on the resurrection. Don't be moved from this. 
Be steadfast, resolute to defend it. And even more, the apostle is addressing all of the problems in the Corinthian church and saying, don't move from this truth. This is our life and this is our hope. Keep holding on to the truth of God. That is your only hope in this broken world. Where else are you going to go? He's our life. Spurgeon said this. I received some years ago orders from my master to stand at the foot of the cross until he comes. He has not come yet. So I mean to stand there until he does. You be steadfast. You stand at the foot of the cross at the door of the empty tomb, that is your life and your hope. Secondly, be steadfast in Christ's work. This is the context in which our steadfastness is exhibited. Our confidence in the resurrection is not just theological truth to uphold. Our confidence in the resurrection directs us in what we do and in how we do what we do. What you believe about the resurrection will dictate how you live and the way you live and where you live and how you function. So notice what Paul says, middle of the verse, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. We've seen that work abounding Previously, it was actually one of the words that informed our theme from a couple of years ago, excel still more. That's the same word as excel. It, it means to be abundant, to do things with excellence, to do things to excess, to do things with liberality. And so when Paul thinks about love in the body of Christ, as he did in 1 Thessalonians 4, which is what was the, the key text for us that year, It was excel still more. Be liberal even more in your love for one another in the body of Christ. And now here he uses that same word to say your work in the ministry should be done to excess. In fact, you might even say you should be spent, worn out, used up. Paul is not just saying the work hard. I know a lot of you... Work hard at your secular jobs and, and that's, that's appropriate and that has its place as well. But that's not what he's saying here. He's thinking about a particular kind of work. Did you notice? Always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's his work. It's the work that he has dictated for us as a church body and for us as followers of Jesus Christ. It's spiritual work. Anything that we do using the gifts he gives us to accomplish his purposes for us. So from this book, we would find that work is spiritual work is it's gospel proclamation and gospel discipleship. We find that in chapter three work is intentionally building into relationships. So people grow in Christ. That's chapter nine. Spiritual work is caring for people and being connected to the body of Christ. That's chapter 12. And notice what he says about this work. Did you see this at the end of the verse? 
knowing that your toil, different word than the word work, obviously has a similar connotation. But the word toil points to the sweatiness of it, the harshness of it, the hardness of it, the intensity of it. It's laborious. It's not always easy. It's a reminder that when something is hard, we don't need to necessarily pull away or quit. Consider Paul's own example just further down the page. Chapter 16, verse 8. I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door of effective service has opened to me and there are many adversaries. It's, it's like the old gag, right? Um, we're surrounded by enemies. We can attack anywhere. He seems excited and thrilled with it. He's not quitting. He's steadfast. He's immovable. He's not saying there's not problems. He's not saying... Hey, it's a piece of cake. You ought to be where I am. It's just a smooth and easy road. No, no, no. It's harsh. It's bitter. Isn't this kind of interesting? Uh, When Keith introduced our theme a couple of weeks ago, he alluded to a statement that we've both heard Al Mohler make on multiple occasions in which he has said, don't just do something, stand there. Right? So there are times when we've got to take a stand. Paul says to the Ephesian church through the first letter to Timothy, he says that he's writing to the church, which is the pillar and support of the truth. That's our job. We stand. We uphold. But notice that he also says we stand by working. He's mixing his metaphors if you will. So he says, don't move from the resurrection, but do move in ministry and service and care. There is nothing, someone has said, that is static about Christian living and service for Christ. Paul is reminding us about the words of our Savior. Remember, Jesus' words to to, uh, Peter, John chapter 21. Do you love me? Serve, feed, shepherd. You remember the words of Jesus to the disciples, the resurrection, or the, excuse me, the ascension? Go into all the world. Take the gospel. Baptize them and teach them how to obey everything that I've told you. In fact, that's the very last word as he's headed into heaven. Go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the uttermost parts of the earth. Go and serve. And that's, it's a reminder from our Savior. It's a reminder from the Apostle Paul. Keep working. It's going to be days that's tough. It'll be days that's wearying, exhausting. And we stand and we work. MacArthur has written, What a word Paul gives to the countless Christians who work and pray and give and suffer as little as they can. How can we be satisfied with the trivial, insignificant, short-lived things of the world? 
How can we take it easy when so many around us are dead spiritually and so many fellow believers are in need of edification, encouragement, and help of every sort? When can a Christian say, I've served my time, I've done my part, let others do the work now? And that's not just theoretical, I've heard that. Somebody moved here, this is decades ago. Somebody moved here and I was getting to know him a little bit. And... Um, I said, what kind of church were you in? Oh, I was in another location, a Bible church. And my ears perked up. He said, in fact, I served as a deacon. My ears perked up some more. And then he said, just to be clear, I've served my time as a deacon. We've moved here so I wouldn't have to be a deacon. I'm going to play golf. End quote. Be steadfast. Immovable. Always. Abounding in the Lord's work. Why? Why would you do that? Why would you pour yourself out? Because we know something. We know, notice what Paul says, that your toil is not vain in the Lord. You know what vanity is? It's purposelessness. It's emptiness. It's that thing you get to the end of life and somebody says, you've wasted your life. That's vanity. And Paul says, if you pour yourself out for Christ, it'll never be empty. There could be an emptiness to serving Christ. Verse 13, if there's no resurrection, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. You've wasted your life. You've missed it if Christ hasn't been raised. Verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. <laughs> Praise God. He is the first fruits of those who are asleep. There's no vanity. You pour it out. You poured out and giving to your children. Some of you poured out and giving for siblings, begging them to come to Christ, and working, laboring. Some of you have given so sacrificially to this body. It's astounding. When you put your head on your pillow at night, you understand. It's not vain. Looks like it sometimes. I get it. It's not vain. Paul means us to understand there's no vainness, emptiness. But he also implies something else also, doesn't he? It's not only not vain. <laughs> there's astounding reward that is coming. <laughs> 
He wants us to know there's benefit to working for Christ. He wants us to know that there's reward that's coming. In fact, he's already talked about it in this book. Chapter 3, starting in verse 10. According to the grace of God, which is given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building, building on it. But each one must be careful how he builds. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And if one man, any man, any man builds on the foundation with gold and silver and precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. And if any man's work which he has built on remains, he will receive a reward. It's coming. It's not only not vain and empty, there is massive reward that is coming from Christ. There's a good day coming, brothers. One writer says, It is not wrong to take Christ at His word that believers should store up treasures in heaven. It is not wrong to strive for that goal. In fact, not striving for rewards in heaven is disobeying Christ's command. You work, you labor, because there's a reward coming. Let's tie this up. Be steadfast in Christ's work. That means... Working hard for Christ and His church. And I demonstrate and you demonstrate every day that we are not leaving Him when we keep fulfilling His calling for our lives. Where has God placed you? What's your realm of responsibility in your home, in your church, in your community? What's God's calling? Being steadfast means fulfilling that calling. Hard work is right work when it is for the Lord. Our temptation is to think, and I know this. I've heard of people, some very close to me, like that close to me. I know the temptation is to think it's hard. Something is wrong. No, brothers. It's hard so that the Lord can show you the depth of his strength and provision for you. Yet not I, but Christ in me. It's not me. It's him. And the difficulty is designed to make us lean on the one who is sufficient. Thirdly, all work for Christ will be rewarded for Christ, by Christ. You will not be destitute in the end. You'll be saved. One last object I want you to see, aspect I want you to see in this text. And it is to be steadfast because. Here's the causation. Here's, here's why we are steadfast. As Paul gets near the end of this letter and here the end of this chapter, the end of the topic of the resurrection, he's drawing a conclusion. Did you see the one word that I omitted as we've been making our way through it? It's the first word. Therefore, he's summarizing this chapter and I think 
He's not just summarizing the chapter on the resurrection. I think he's summing up everything in the book. All the problems that the Corinthians have had that culminated in their rejection of the resurrection. Now he's making one final conclusion about what they are to do. And what they are to do is to be steadfast. Why? Because of the resurrection. He's made clear the resurrection is a reality. The resurrection of Christ is a reality. So our resurrection is a reality. And be steadfast because of that reality. Notice what he has said. Verses 1 to 19. He's focused on the fact of the resurrection. He's again pointed to the fact that it is it is the first thing that we preach. This is the thing of first importance. That's verse 1. And then the very next thing that he does is he doesn't just point to some by and by hope and desire, but he points to the resurrection of Christ and points to its reality by proving it. Verses 3, 4, and 5. He was buried Raised on the third day and he appeared. How do we know he was resurrected? Because he appeared. To whom did he show up? To Cephas, to Peter, then to the twelve, then to all the broader church. And then James, the apostles, and five hundred. And then ultimately to Paul himself. The resurrection is the gospel message. It is... It is everything to us. Be steadfast because the resurrection is a reality. Be steadfast because of the results of the resurrection. What happens because Christ is resurrected? What happens because we have the hope of the resurrection? And that's verses 20 to 34. Let me just draw your attention to the middle of that section. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Death doesn't win. That's why it's a shadow in Psalm 23. He has put to get put all things into subjection under his feet. That's verse 27. And when all things, verse 28, are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. God wins. That's the results of the resurrection. Freedom from death, freedom from sin, Exaltation of God in Christ. Be steadfast because of the nature of the resurrected body, a body that you will receive in eternity that is literal, imperishable, and spiritual. And be steadfast because of the day of the final resurrection. Verse 53. This perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. If if you're in Christ, your body must be changed. (laughs) How are you going to do that? You're not. Christ will. And He will. You be steadfast. And the summary of this final verse returns to and reinforces 57 verses of the resurrection. Be steadfast because Christ is alive and you will be too. It's a reminder that we will not have 
necessarily ease in this world. This is no promise that we won't have trouble. But this is a promise that after our trouble, we will have resurrection. Ligon Duncan writes in his helpful book, When Pain is Real, in redemption, death always precedes resurrection. The cross always comes before the crown. Whatever catastrophe may end this world is merely a tool in God's hand to build the new heavens and the new earth. Whatever you fear may cause God's promises to whatever you fear may cause God's promises to fail will likely be the very thing that God uses to fulfill them. He won't fail. The resurrection is real. The reason for our steadfastness, the reason for our perseverance, because he's resurrected and we will be too. A few weeks ago when the elders were sitting around the table and we were thinking about theme for the year, we decided we need to talk about endurance. We need to talk about persistence. Lots of passages that were floated around the table. This one seemed simplest. Be steadfast. As we talked about it, we said, we just don't want people to miss the context. And so what we almost said was, our theme for the year is, therefore, be steadfast. You're not steadfast because you're strong. You're steadfast because you have a resurrected Savior. Be strong in Him. Be faithful to His work. And He will keep you. Our Father, we thank You for this word. It's a pretty simple word. It's uncomplicated. And it's so packed with helpful meaning, importance. And we acknowledge our Father that it is so very easy in this world to get distracted, to forget about the importance of Christ, the provision of Christ, the importance of the resurrection. It's easy to be bombarded and to forget. This year, especially, as we are being attacked personally and corporately, culturally, would you keep our eyes riveted on the resurrection? And as we are consumed with the resurrection, might we be steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our toil in the Lord is not in vain. We pray in his name. Amen.